Y'all, we're doing a series on the idea that God is at work, even when it feels like he's not. That even when um, things may be really hard, when there's suffering, um, that God is at work in the midst of those things. And look, one of the things, one of the things I really love about my job is that I get to meet with a lot of y'all, and I get to hear your stories. If that's something that you ever want to do with me, just find someone who knows my number, or come talk to me afterwards and text me. I'd love to get coffee or buy you lunch or whatever. But look, because I get to do that, I know y'all's stories. And I know that there are some really hard things that have happened to people here in this room and at Texas. I mean, good gracious, like even last year, there were like some really hard things that happened in Texas. And in the midst of that, when people are, are on campus dying or when storms are coming and flooding people's homes, it is really, I think, natural and even maybe right to ask, God, what are you doing? And the good thing about the Bible is that it doesn't back away from those questions. And here's what I want to look at today. We talked to, we, the last couple night, nights we've talked about like how does God work in the midst of suffering. Last, night, last week we talked about that the way that we see God work most climactically in the midst of suffering is on the cross when God himself, the Christian religion is the only world religion that has a God who suffers. When God himself gets on the cross to make things right because he hates suffering. He hates the brokenness in this world. And so Jesus comes to do something about it. But here's what I want to look at tonight, okay? I want to look at what's the end game of all of this work that God is doing? What's the goal of God's work in your life? Or what is, what is the fruit of God's work in our lives? And so we're going to look at a story about wine. Um, I love this story. And I think it's so interesting that it's positioned where it is in the book of John. So one thing you need to know about the book of John is John kind of sets out these seven signs. He talks about these, these different signs that Jesus did that revealed his divinity to the watching world. And each of these signs pointed to not just to the fact that Jesus was divine, but also what kind of divinity is he? What is he about? And any of y'all listen to Brian Regan? Any Brian Regan comedy fans here? Yeah, okay, a couple. If you, you should Spotify him. He's really funny. But he talks about um, when he was a kid, he would uh, be, they used to have the old, old station wagons. The back seat would face backwards, which is just so weird. But like you would sit in the back seat and just be like facing out the back of your car. And he was like, when I would sit, I was in a big family, he's like, when I would be sitting in the back seat of my station wagon, there were two things I was trying to do. The first thing was avoid eye contact with people in the car behind me when we were in bumper-to-bumper traffic. It's just like, hello, you're still right there, hi. Like, but he said the second thing is as we were driving like to Disney World, the, the whole time I'm just thinking, I wonder what all these signs say. Because they're all pointing this way and he's going that way and you know he's just missing all the signs one after the other because they're all backwards and I really think that that's what that's what John is doing 
with these signs is he wants you to ask. I wonder what this sign says. What does this mean about Jesus? And look, the first sign that he does, he shows up on the scene, and the first miracle that Jesus does is he turns water into wine. And let me tell you what I think that sign means. I think that it means that the fruit of God's work in this world is joy. What Je- Here's what I think. What Jesus is communicating is, I have come to bring the party. That's why I'm here. And that's what this first sign's about. And look, if you don't believe me, listen to what the angels say. When they come to proclaim to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, Luke 2.10, they proclaim, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For a, a news of a great joy. What is that joy? It's, a, it's the baby in the manger. It's Jesus. He comes in the midst of the dark night of Bethlehem, the dark night of our souls, in the midst of the struggle that you may be in right now and feel hopeless, or in the midst of the brokenness and pain and suffering, and you are wondering, when is this going to stop? And why in the world is this happening to me? And y'all, what I'm here to tell you is that Jesus, his end game in your life is joy. So, what I want to look at tonight, uh, three things. What is joy? How is it ruined? And how is it restored? What's joy? How is it ruined? And how is it restored? Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father, uh, I pray that now the words of my mouth and that the meditation of all of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you. And we ask that you would be with us and help us now, our Lord and our Rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, first off, what is joy? What joy is, is it's something you were made for. You were made for joy. Um, the, uh, these old Scottish guys sat down like four or five hundred years ago and they were trying to figure out what the meaning of life was. They're called the Westminster Divines. They wrote the Westminster Standards. And their first question they asked is, what is man's chief end? Like, why are we here? And I love the answer they gave. This is what they said. The reason we're here, they said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And those two things, glorify and enjoy, are fused at the spine. It's not one and then the other. They they go together. Let me let me tell you what I mean by that. So like, we have my wife Christy and I have four kids. Owen, we got him a um, a balance bike. I don't know what a balance bike is. They are so cool. Like they don't you don't do training wheels with kids anymore. That is like so like early two thousands, y'all. You do not do training wheels with your kids now. You like give them a bike that has no pedals, and they just kind of like go like this on the bike. And then they'll pick up their feet and balance for a little bit. And then as soon as they start to fall, they put their feet back down. That's how they learn how to like balance. It's pretty cool. So we get Owen a balance bike, and he is completely disinterested in it. Like, come on, let's go get on the bike. And he just, he wants to play with the box that the bike came in, you know. And, but one day I come home, 
and he's on the balance bike. And he's loving it. And he's enjoying it. And do you know what that does to the giver? It brings glory to that gift that he's given them. Do you want to know how to glorify God? Maybe you like grew up in the church and you always heard like, no, you really should make sure that you're glorifying God in your life. It's like, okay, well, like, what does that mean? Glorify, does that mean I just need to walk around like all the time like, God, I glorify you, God, I glorify you. I'm taking this, this, oh, praise you, Jesus, I glorify you. Like, I'm just, like, is that what glorifying is? Is it just like a constant like state of mind? I actually think what it is is using the good things that your dad has given you and enjoying them. Because he, is, he takes pleasure in you enjoying the things that he's given you. So what that might mean is this. Listen to what Alexander Schmemann says. This is a, he's a theologian. He says, also, if anyone can turn up the air, that would be amazing. And I'm not kidding. The lights are like 10 times hotter. Oh, my gosh. This is great. I'm going to sweat off some weight here. I ate a big dinner last night. All right. Um, Listen to what Alexander Schmemann says. All that exists is God's gift to man and it all exists to make God known to man. Do you hear what he said? All that exists, everything that exists, it's God's gift to man, and its purpose for existing is to make God known to man. So, I had a big dinner last night. I went to Jeffrey's last night. You went to Jeffrey's? Oh my gosh. When I texted one of y'all and said, hey, I'm going to Jeffrey's, he was like, dude, just get the truffle deviled eggs for me, man, Please. I was like, okay, that sounds kind of gross, but whatever, I'll trust you, you're kind of a foodie. And so I got, y'all, I ordered the truffle deviled eggs. They were amazing. Just like little, like yellow, fluffy pillows with like this salty, crispy thing, which I'm assuming was the truffle on top. And it was incredible. And that little thing, that dainty delight, exists to make God known to man. Your favorite food exists to make God known to man. The way that, like, the bass, like, thumps in your chest when you're at a really good concert, like, the bass is so loud, it, like, moves the inside part of your body that kind of makes you want to move your body. That's God's gift to man to make him known to you. Think about it. He didn't have to make any of those things. He didn't have to make sound vibrations. He didn't have to make ears that we can hear music. He didn't have to make music. He didn't have to make taste buds so you can enjoy a truffle devil hipster egg thing, whatever. He didn't have to do that. All of it's a gift, and he's done it so that you can know that he's good and that he's for you. Like, I, uh, <laughs> here's the other thing about joy. The other thing about joy is that it was made to be shared. So, um, I got to be a, a youth pastor in Houston for six years before I came here after seminary. And uh, I l- my youth group was a, a, this really fun crew of kids, and uh, it was this diverse crew of kids. And we had a, a, a really big group of kids that were from Liberia. They were refugees from Liberia. And um, they, had, they had seen, like, some really, really hard things. And as I got to know them better, they, like, started to tell me that. I mean, it, it, they had been through a lot. And one of the kids, I'm going to call him T-Mac for this story. Um, T-Mac was, 
he was like so fun, but when I first met him, he was he would not say a word. He was so quiet and shy. And um, he had a big burn mark like all the way up his arm that he wouldn't tell anyone what it was from for a long time. He's been through it as a kid, he'd been through a lot. So we take all of our youth group, including the Liberian refugees, to Schlitterbahn. And they're like, they've like just come to America, they're like, what is this place? What have I just set foot on? <laughs> and so we go, we go to the Master Blaster at Schlitterbahn, which is like the super long line, you know, we're just waiting to get on. And uh, I've got, I'm like trying to make sure like all these middle schoolers don't die. I'm like in charge of all of them. And we're all going through it. And I, the first time I went down, like one of the parts, like when you're a youth pastor, you kind of have to take one for the team a lot of times, you know, like you just, you're always doing that. And so like we get in and like the master blaster is like this figure eight floats, you know, where like someone sits in front of you and you sit in the back like awkwardly. And uh, so it was an odd number the first time we went down. And so I'm like <laughs> sitting in the back of the float by myself with like my white pasty legs just kind of dangling. And I'm going down this ride all alone. And when you go, have you ever been on a, like a, a roller coaster or a ride when you're by yourself? What do you do? Like you have one of two options. You can scream by yourself and you feel like an idiot because you're just like on the master bus like, like screaming and you're alone and a grown man it's kind of weird or or you ride the master blaster in silence <laughs> just like you know and that is awkward too it's just an awkward experience all the way around so like what does one do i, I, I screamed but anyway like i get down and there are all the kids like, let's go again, let's go again. I'm like, okay. And I see T-Mac, and he's like wondering, and he's like all alone. And I'm like, T-Mac, come with us. So he hops in line with us, and we're all, and everyone's peering off, and we get, we go down, and guess, guess who's riding with T-Mac? I'm riding with T-Mac, right. And um, so now we get in the float, and like even more awkwardly, like T-Mac, I'm like straddling him in the back, you know, of the float, get, about to get real. And we go, this kid that, at, at, at that time, I had never heard him really say a word. This sweet little kid. We go down the master blaster, and like we go down that first drop, and T Max just like, ah! like he starts screaming, and I start dying laughing, and I start screaming, and he's laughing, and we just have the best, and we come down like whoosh, like the very end, and we just had the best time. And we're laughing and we're talking about the ride. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so funny when you screamed. I never heard you say a word. He's like, I know, that was hilarious. And like, look, the same ride, the same ride back to back, but two totally different experiences. Because what joy was made for is to be shared. Because you are made, you are made in the image of a relational God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he wants to share his joy with you because you're made for it. And when you share in that joy with other people, there's something that you feel and that you experience inside from that. That's why people love going to sporting events. That's why people love going to concerts. It's because we're all together and we're enjoying it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is 
it is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling, uh, telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until that love is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch, or to hear a joke and find no one to share it with. And he refers to the, the catechism I said about a second ago. He says, the Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these things are the same. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. He beckons you to enjoy him. And so, what joy is, kind of, borrowing from John Piper here. What joy is, is the feeling in the soul from seeing the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. You know why I love that definition so much? It's a feeling in the soul that comes from seeing Christ in the word and the world. Here's why that's so good. Because Christ doesn't change. See, all these other things that we look to find joy in, they run out and they change. if you have the source of all of those good things, if instead of grabbing for those good things, you get the one who has given them to you, who's made them, who's whispering in each one of those things that he's good, that he's for your joy. If you have the source, you have eternal joy. You have what you were made for. But look, here's the problem. Here's the problem with our world. Here's the problem with us is that joy is ruined in this world right now. Let me tell you how it's ruined. Joy is ruined because of scarcity. There's a scarcity of joy in this world. All right, y'all look, imagine the party. They're in some podunk town in Galilee called Cana. Someone apparently knew Jesus. Like, how cool would that be like, oh, you had the governor come to your wedding? That's nice. I had Jesus come to my wedding. Like, someone just invited the Messiah to their wedding. Okay, cool. So he comes to the wedding, and the weddings back then would be like a multi-day event. And I just want you to imagine like what that would be like. A multi-day event where you're with all your friends and all your family, and the wine's flowing, and the bass is thumping. And you're, and you're dancing, and then you're having fun, but then, oh my gosh, what happens? The wine runs out. And like the music stops, and your awkward uncle who's on the dance floor like quits dancing, and everyone stops getting to enjoy that. And what you get in this scene is a scene of joy that's been ruined. And it's sad, and it's shameful for the people hosting the party. It's awkward. And Jesus is going to do something about it. Because the party is ending too soon. And doesn't it, isn't that what life kind of feels like sometimes? Like you get a little taste of joy and satisfaction and goodness, and then it just kind of like evaporates. And you're kind of left with yourself. 
and you're left with a shortage of joy. Do you know what we do when that happens? There's a couple things that we do. One thing that we might do is we try to get better things. Like the problem is, the reason I don't have joy right now, I just need better stuff around me. I need to change my major, maybe. I need a new major. Or I need a new boyfriend. Some of you may need that. Or, I'm just kidding. Or maybe not. But anyway, like, or I need, I need a new car. I need a new job. I just need, I need more of something. Listen to, look, Solomon. Solomon was like a bigger baller than any of us will ever be. He was king. He was the wisest man in the world. He had, he built all of these palaces. He had, like, Solomon had anything he wanted. The dude was a sex addict. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And a concubine literally exists for the king's sexual, whatever, escapades. Solomon had everything he wanted. Everything. Listen to what he said. Ecclesiastes 2. I surveyed all that my hands had done, all that I had worked to achieve, and everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You felt that. You get that thing that you've been striving for over and over. And you get it and you're, it's like the joy runs out. The Christmas present gets old. The other thing that we do, maybe you don't try to get new things. Maybe you try to get a better you. Like, I'm not happy because I'm not living my best life right now. I, maybe I need a new diet. Maybe I need to start, maybe I need to just start working a lot harder in school and just crush it in school. Or maybe I need to like have a four hour quiet time every morning. That's my problem. Or maybe I just need to do blah, 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 all these things. Do you know where that usually leads to? Anxiety. Not being able to control all the things you're trying to control. Selena Gomez. Segway there. Listen to Selena Gomez. She, uh, she said this at the 2016 AMAs after she had been battling with anxiety. I had everything and I was absolutely broken inside. And I tried to keep it all together so I would never let you all down, but I kept it too much together to where I let myself down. Controlling everything and making a better you is not the answer to fixing the joy shortage in your life. So what is it? Here's the, the reason we can't fix it is because we're the problem. Listen to what Romans 8 says. Romans 8, 20 through 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This is what Paul's saying. The reason that there's a shortage of joy in the world, the reason that creation is not the way it's supposed to be, that everything is broken, is because of the brokenness inside of us. Because of our sin. And so because we're sinners, we can't make it right. We just mess stuff up. So how is joy restored? Final point. Y'all, like, Jesus is just the best. Kinda, like, let me tell you why he's the best. Think of all the miracles that he did, like, throughout his life. 
And the thing he could have done to be like, yo, I'm here and I'm the son of God. Like, what would the first thing that you would pick to do? Personally, like, the raising Lazarus from the dead that we talked about two weeks ago, I feel like that might have been my pick. Like, I'm just going to roll up in here, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and everyone's going to see that I am for real. Or I would have done, like, one of the cool, crazy ones where he, like, casts the demons into the pigs and they run over the cliff. Like, something like that. Like, that was a pretty cool one. Anyway. Um, you know, he goes to some no-names wedding. Some nobody's wedding in Podunk, Cana, in Galilee. And they just run out of wine. And he's like, this is going to be my first miracle. Because I want them to know, the first thing I want them to know about me is I have come to bring life to the party. I've come to bring the joy. The purpose and the goal of his work in your life is joy. And it's not like crappy joy. Did you catch this? He makes 150 gallons of wine. Not like, I'll give you all a little taste, you know, a little smackerel of joy. Mm-mm. Like, this is a, the equivalent of over 900 bottles of wine that he makes for this party. And it's not like cheap box wine that you have at your frat parties. It's like the master of the ceremony. Y'all drink, you don't even drink box wine at your frat parties. Whatever, I went to Vanderbilt, sorry. But like, <laughs> look... I, hey, <laughs> not planning on saying that. Um, look, the master of, this, of, the, of the wedding, the master of the feast, like his job, he'd be like Franck from like Father of the Bride. Like his job is to like taste wine and to like preside over weddings. And he tastes it and he's like, this is the best wine I've ever had. That's what Jesus makes. I'm going to give them a crap ton of the best wine they've ever had. That's my first miracle. That's so great. That's what he does. Because what Jesus wants you to know, he brings joy. That's his goal. That's what he wants for you. All this other stuff that you're looking to, that's not satisfying you, that's leaving you empty and broken, it won't give you joy. And Jesus comes and what he wants you to know about him I bring you joy behold the angel says behold I bring great tidings of joy um you know what this isn't new for like you know sometimes people are like man the old testament God's like kind of grumpy but like thank goodness we have Jesus God's been doing this all along it is just like him to show up in the flesh and say, I come to bring joy. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And he shows them all of these trees that he's made, all of this fruit, all of this bounty. He's like, take and eat it, whatever you want. Just don't eat that one tree. But everything is for you. It's a gift so that you can know me. When, when Israel, when Israel is wandering in the desert, God feeds them. He wants them to feast with bread from heaven because God God wants to satisfy you. He wants to give you a feast of joy. And not only that, like 
when you're reading the, if you, <laughs> maybe some of you have been like, I'm going to read through the Bible, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, ah, eh, never mind. Like, Leviticus, you know, like all those rules, all the laws. Do you know what the laws of Leviticus 23 are? Listen, all of Leviticus 23 is about, this is how I want you to order your calendar. We're going to do some calendar planning for Israel, okay? And the calendar plans were all around feasts, feasts of joy. There was the Passover feast, the feast of the unleavened bread, the feast of the first fruits, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of trumpets, and the feast of tabernacles. And then Leviticus 25 comes along, and it's like, oh yeah, by the way, every 50 years, you're going to have a year-long feast. And nobody can work, because you're all going to be feasting for a year, and you're going to call it Jubilee. And everyone's debts are going to be canceled, and you're going to be kind to the sojourner among you, and you're going to feast with them. Because God is about joy. And when Jesus shows up, of course, that's when Jesus shows up, everyone, like, the people are looking at him, they're like, listen, like, who is this guy who's eating and drinking all the time with tax collectors and sinners? People thought that Jesus was a glutton and a drunk because they didn't understand that he came to bring the joy. That's what he came to bring for you. In fact, so much so that on the night before he's crucified, he takes bread and wine, and the feast now, he says, is his body and blood, so that you can be fed and know that he is for your joy. Drink this cup, this wine, in remembrance of me, and know I'm for your joy. Um, so look, Christianity... Christianity is not about limiting your joy. Like sometimes I used to think like, dang, like, okay, so being a Christian is like, there's all this stuff that I can't do. I can't do these things and so, because I'm a Christian. Being a Christian, way more so than that stuff, what it's about is what you get. It's not about what you give up. Yes, we do. We do die to ourselves when we come to know Jesus. And we do. He does call us to turn, to turn from our evil ways. But you get so much more. You get the source of the joy. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. This is how he describes it. It would seem, ah, this is so good. You've probably heard this before, maybe, but if you haven't, or even if you have, just listen to this. It's so good. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Like the problem God has with us is not that we want stuff too much, it's that our desires are too weak, he says. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. What Jesus wants to do is he wants for you to actually be satisfied with the joy that he offers you. And the way, there's a way that he's going to do it. And we kind of get, we get hints of it here in this passage. Like, it's an interesting detail that John puts in there that those stone water jars were for the Jewish purification rites. So what that means is like, if you wanted to go worship you needed to wash yourself and become pure and clean so that you could come before God. 
And what does Jesus do with that stuff that you had to use to clean yourself? He takes it and he makes it into wine. And you know what I think Jesus is saying? You know what? Look, that's the law. That water is the law that you have to get yourself cleaned up to come to me. And Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill the law that you can't fulfill because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I can't fulfill it. So Jesus came to fulfill it for us. And so you know what happens when he cleans you? You get wine. The joy of coming into the presence of God. And him smiling on you because in his sight you're clean because of the blood of Jesus. It's the good news of the gospel. And so when his mom, did you, did you think like Jesus was being sassy there for a second? Did you think Jesus was being sassy in verse 4? His mom's like, they have no wine. He's like, woman? My, my hour has not yet come. I was like, dang, Jesus. Give him some sass. He's not. He's not. The other time he calls his mom woman in the, in the book of John is in John 19 when he is on the cross. And it's this very tender moment that he has hanging on the cross, looking at his mom, who is most likely widowed because Joseph has died. And now her oldest son is dying. And Jesus is caring for her and making sure that someone's going to take care of her. And so he says, woman, behold your son, to the apostle John, leaving her in his care. So I don't think Jesus is being rough with her when he's like, woman, my hour has not yet come. But what he is doing is he is reminding her, listen, you're not just my mom. You are, I, I made you. <laughs> and my hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? All throughout the book of John, it talks about the hour, the hour, the hour had not yet come, the hour had not yet come. And then when Jesus goes to the cross, his hour has come. The reason he says my hour has not yet come for me to bring the wine is because, listen, the ultimate wedding feast that Jesus has his mind and his eyes set on is not just this wedding feast in Podunk, Cana. It's the wedding feast to end all wedding feasts that he is going to win, that he has won in his death on the cross when his hour did come so that he could bring joy to you. He did it for you. And so... What Jesus has done is he has paid for the final wedding. The wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. When this picture is made of the church, the church being, and look, we're gonna, I'm actually going to preach through Revelation this spring, but it's this picture of the church being united finally to the one true source of joy, Jesus, as a bride is united to a groom. But you know what the bride's like? Like in John 2, in John 2, you get, okay, Jesus is, Jesus is thinking about a wedding to come, but what's his bride going to be like? And then in John 3, you meet this guy named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus has everything right about himself. He's this righteous, great guy. He's like a high-class religious Pharisee. But he goes away not really knowing who Jesus is. He eventually does, the end of the book of John. But then in John 4, you find out what the bride is like. You know why I think that's true? Because Jesus walks up to a well. All throughout the Old Testament, people met their brides at wells. 
Moses met his bride at a well. Jacob met his bride at a well. Isaac met his bride at a well. Jesus walks up to Jacob's well, the place called Jacob's well. We talked about this the first week. And he meets that Samaritan woman who's had five broken marriages, who's a total wreck, who no one wants to hang out with, who no one wants to be with. And he meets her at the well, and she's the first person that he tells, I am the Christ. That's what his bride's like. And that is good news for you and me, because that's what we're like. And so he went to the cross for you. And if you are a sinner, and you want joy, call out to him, and he will give it to you by faith. By faith in him, he will give you his joy. Eternal joy. The hope of it. And look, I know some of you are feeling like, well, that sounds nice, but I don't feel that right now. I know. I know. But your hope is that one day everything is going to be made right. It will be made right. Believe in Jesus. It's what the, it's what the disciples do at the end of the story. They look at him and they're like, oh my gosh. They believe in him. You want joy everlasting? Believe in the Son who came for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have come and brought joy, that the goal of your work in our lives, even when it hurts, even when we suffer, even when things are hard, that you come to bring joy. May we believe that. Even now, as we sing this last verse, would you, this last verse of this song that we sing, would you bore it down deep into our souls? That I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That you bring a poor, vile sinner into your house of wine. May that be our hope, even in the midst of suffering, as you work in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.